This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. A tale of two marches. Usually, the Return to Order Moment features a single article from www.returntoorder.org. Today's podcast will feature two, both by Mr. John Horvat. These articles are being read in the year 2020 by Edwin Benson. The two articles contrast two separate events, both of which happened in Washington, D.C. within a few days of each other. One was a dismal failure, the other a resounding success. The failure, even by the standards of its own organizers, was the annual Women's March. The success was also an annual event, the March for Life. The two articles present a marvelous contrast between two worldviews. So first I offer to you three reasons why the 2020 Women's March failed by John Horvat II. This year's Women's March had everything going for it. An election year, the impeachment of a pro-life president, and growing polarization over abortion should have served to energize the angry feminist minority. However, the march with the theme, Women Rising, might have been better themed, Numbers Falling. Less than 10,000 showed up for the January 18th march around the White House. Similar results were reported at the event's far fewer sister marches in major cities. While many marches appear to have gone unflagged on the map on the 2020 March official website, a total of 18 are. In any event, the real number of marches is far fewer than the 408 claimed by Wikipedia for 2017. Support for the unfocused movement is flagging everywhere. The contrast could not be more striking. On the day after President Trump's inauguration in 2017, a few hundred thousand gathered in the nation's capital. Each successive year has seen the numbers fall. This year, not even the sympathetic media could inflate the numbers beyond the few thousand that were there. The program was disorganized, its chance disjointed, and the enthusiasm missing. The failure to get boots on the ground to the march happened because the women's movement is in disarray. It cannot get its act together because there are three inherent problems tearing it apart. The first problem is that the march is not about all women. The leadership cannot agree on what it means to be a woman. Its feminist roots automatically exclude huge numbers of women who disagree with it on key issues like procured abortion, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, and family. The lack of inclusivity alienates many women who see it for what it is, a liberal group with an agenda. At the same time, the march tries to unite clashing liberal causes. This has led to severe fighting. In 2018, the March leadership faced serious charges of anti-Semitism, especially because of pro-Islam members who attacked Jews and Israel. As a result, some civil rights groups and the Democratic National Committee withdrew support. Celebrities shied away. Distrust and policy disagreements led to last year's holding of two competing marches on the same day in New York City. The infighting extended to the leadership that many say is disconnected from the grassroots. Three co-founding members, including Islamic member Linda Sarsour, stepped down. A new, more inclusive 16-member governing committee, including a woman rabbi, is now in place. While more politically correct, the new leadership has failed to energize the marchers. 
A second problem with the march is that it has lost its focus. A liberal women's march should deal with liberal women's issues. The march leadership has expanded its message to include just about anything under the sun that resonates with liberal politics. It doesn't have to include women. This unfocused message naturally chills passion. This year's march, for example, carried an anti-war theme as the marchers protested the killing of Iranian terrorist leader General Hassem Soleimani on January 2nd. The 2020 march also embraced three major themes, abortion, immigration, and climate change. The Chicago march added the census, climate justice, and gun violence prevention to its gallery of issues. The Women's March was never about all women. It was always for the culture's unbridled sexuality that oppresses women. However, the inclusion of other issues like climate change tends to dilute an already shallow platform. The final reason why the march organizers cannot deliver is that their message has become increasingly negativistic and even morbid. Revolutionary movements usually seek to present a bright future for their militants should they triumph. The tone of the Women's March is one of dark foreboding and despair. One reason for the acrimony is that its leadership has turned what should be an issue-driven debate into a personal obsession against President Trump. Personal fights can be very exhausting. The president's continued attacks on the feminist gallery of issues have led to what many call protest fatigue, or even Trump fatigue. The liberal grassroots are burning out leading to numbers falling marches across the country. It is hard to speak of women rising when only a few show up. The debacle naturally leads to the question of where are all the protesting women? Major media will never report the answer. However, Washington's January 24th March for Life truly saw women rising. Countless others will rise in state and local marches for life. Millions of pro-life women, many of them young, are rising to defend God's law and the authentic, if still unrecognized, rights of America's innocent unborn. Now I present the second article. Two Unexpected Things That Happened at the March for Life and Why They're Important by John Horvath II. Two unexpected things happened at the 47th Annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. this year. These developments might well change the nature of the whole debate. Some of us who regularly attend the March for Life seldom find the unexpected. Quite the contrary. We expect our hundreds of thousands of marchers to be ignored by major media. We expect to be insulted by liberals everywhere. We expect unfulfilled promises from faithless politicians. All these things have not changed the debate these 47 years, but only served to increase our resolve. However, on January 24, 2020, the unexpected did happen. Some of our prayers were answered, which should give us much hope. Of course, the most unexpected event at the march was the personal appearance of President Donald Trump. He is the first sitting president to join pro-lifers in the 47 years that we have marched to the Supreme Court. Past presidents have avoided participating in the march. Even conservative ones have managed to be out of town. However, this was the first time that the country's president has come on stage. This appearance signals that the fight against procured abortion has taken on preeminent importance in the United States, 
It is mainstream. Without question, the president's address sent a message to the pro-life movement in America to continue the fight. However, it also encouraged all those who defend life worldwide. Everyone saw the leader of the world's most powerful nation defend life. The myth that abortion is settled law was shaken to its core by the president's appearance. The second unexpected thing at the March for Life was President Trump's framing of the debate. Pro-abortion advocates have long sought to frame the abortion issue as a matter of women's reproductive rights, health, and choice. They have avoided at all costs the discussion of abortion's moral and religious dimensions. The president would have already been a success if he had limited himself to defending innocent human life. However, he went far beyond this. He mentioned the baby's immortal soul, adding that, quote, every human life, born and unborn, is made in the holy image of Almighty God, unquote. He further declared that, quote, every child is a precious and sacred gift from God, unquote. He acknowledged God as creator when he said that, quote, when we see the image of a baby in the womb, we glimpse the majesty of God's creation, unquote. In making these statements, the president recognized the inherently religious, moral, and Christian character of the abortion debate. By recognizing the unborn child's immortal soul, we frame the debate as a religious issue. We affirm that procured abortion is an attack on the holy image of Almighty God as seen in the unborn child. Thus, there is a battle taking place between those of God and those opposing God's creation. There can be no compromise with this culture of death that desires the annihilation of the innocent unborn precisely because each human being is a unique reflection of God's divine perfections. As much as some might try to frame the issue otherwise, this religious and Christian perspective is the one that most resonates with those Americans who fight and march for life. Religious symbols, statues, and messages are found on the banners and signs of those who march. Hymns, rosaries, and prayers are on the lips of many who protest. We march for life and babies, but above all, for God. That is why the abortion fight is so important. By standing firm in our conviction about procured abortion, we keep God and his law in the center of the national debate. This is changing the cultural and political landscape. Indeed, even the president speaks about it. When we put God in the center of the debate, unexpected things happen. We can expect more. End of A Tale of Two Marches made up of two articles by John Horvath II. Thank you so much for listening. For additional articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.